There we go. Uh, no one is here with me. I'm in a room by myself, so you'll have to excuse me. This is tougher than most Bible studies when you're doing it alone in a room. But so I know you're awake, those of you on Zoom. Wave or say amen. Beautiful. Um, I'm going to give you the backstory. We're in James chapter 1. We left off right around verse 15. James is a book written by the half-brother of Jesus, who was not a believer while he was alive, but Jesus appeared to him and he became a believer. The book of James is a series of tests by which we can examine ourselves and see if we're in the faith. Am I doing that one? Oh, am I, oh I'm having trouble with that one. And so there's all kinds of tests. We've already had a few in this first chapter, namely trials, trouble in our lives and how we handle it. And we know that the trials produce um, perseverance. So that's what J James starts out with in the first few verses, how to view those trials with joy, which is not easy. Um, so it's sort of a faith gymnasium thing when we go through trials. So we also saw in chapter one that if you ask for wisdom, God gives it. And that when we're praying, we ought, we should not doubt. We should just trust him and believe that he hears us and he will do his will, the best thing for us. Um, we learned about the poor and their sort of high position because they are poor. And then the humiliation of the rich people we learned about also in this chapter. We also learned that God doesn't tempt anyone, um, that we're tempted. Well, we'll look at those verses and talk about it. Anyway, let's begin. Um, I do have one quick correction to make. Um, I had one or two people email me about this or talk to me afterwards, and I looked it up, and they're right. Here's what I said that was incorrect. I said, um, I quoted Habakkuk 1, which says that God cannot look on sin, that he's so separate from sin, he can't look at sin. Well, it turns out that's not right, so I want to correct that. The word for look at is nabat in Hebrew, and it means to look at something with favor that God would look on you with favor. Well, he can't look on sin with favor, but there are verses in the Bible that say that God does see even wicked deeds that go on. He's still totally separate from them, but he does see them. Proverbs 15, three is one of them. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. So I apologize. Um, I was wrong about that. He is separate from sin, separate from guilt and all of that, but he does see um evil. Job 34 says his eyes are upon, God's eyes are upon the ways of the of man, and he sees all his goings. So I just wanted to correct that. And um, I'm sure when I get to heaven someday, God's going to say, sit down, Joe, I've got a bunch of other corrections for you. But in any case, let's dive in. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own lust or evil desire and enticed. So that explains that the real reason, even though the world can influence us and the flesh, uh, our inner desires and the devil, it's really our inner desires, that flesh, that uh, lust that we have inside of us, that is what tempts us to do all kinds of sin. Um, then there's the progression in verse 15, where it ends up. 
It says, then after desire has conceived, and he's using like a birth analogy, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, left untreated, in other words, gives birth to death. So this is the idea that apart from the will of God, whatever we do is sin, whether we think it or say it or do it. Um, Sin is a much more serious thing than most people realize, um, and we have to deal with it radically. Um, Jesus talks about that in the Gospel of Matthew. So um, there's that connection, though, between sin, and it seems so uh, enticing, so much fun, but if we yield to it, we end up giving birth to sin, and then it becomes very much addictive. It's a very much habit-forming, you might say, like cigarettes or something. Um, so uh, it's the opposite of life in verse 12. If you look down at verse 12, it speaks about life. Here he's saying death, meaning the second death, hell, uh, eventually. Sin is the reason that all of us die physical death as well. But God can break that chain of sin and guilt through the cross, through Jesus Christ. Um, Okay, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. And that's a transitional verse that introduces verse 17. So 16 refers both to what we just said. Don't be deceived about sin because the world says, oh, it's not that bad. Everybody's doing it. God understands. Boys will be boys. This verse is saying, don't be deceived. It's way worse than you and I think it is. So uh, it's leading into verse 17. One quick thing, in Greek, there's a word for sin, and it's hamartia, H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A. Hamartia, some people pronounce it. Um, And that's a word for all kinds of evil and sin. Sin is anything that that is against God's will. The thing about sin, which we're going to hear a lot, this word is going to come up a lot, and it's the word word, which means the Bible, the message of the gospel. The only way we can learn what sin is, is through the Bible. The reason I say that is we do have a conscience, but we tend to create a level of sin that we think is okay based on our lifestyles. Only God in his word can challenge us and show us that whatever our level we think is okay, he's going to make it lower and lower and lower because no level of sin is okay. Look at verse 17. He says, don't be deceived, dear brothers and sisters. Verse 17, every good and perfect gift given is really uh, implied in that word. Uh, We'll come back to that. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Okay, so there's several things going on here. This is a verse about God's goodness. We've seen Satan's evil characteristics in the verses previously when we're tempted and all of that. God's goodness is such that he gives good gifts. As a matter of fact, every good and perfect gift is from him, from above. In John 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, I tell you the truth, you must be born again. That word is the same Greek word, from above, born again, from above, from God, in other words. Okay, so God's goodness That verse 17 tells you that every single good thing in your life, 
If you can see or hear or speak or walk or think or have any money or any food or clothing or shelter over your head or good friends or family or talents and abilities and a car or a bicycle, every single good gift in your life, if you could dust it for heavenly fingerprints, you'd find God's fingerprints are on every good thing. That ought to make us so grateful, just that verse, that we would want to please him, right, and read his word. Every good and perfect gift, and it's two different words for gift there, uh, are, are used. Uh, all from above, coming down from, and he uses a, a, a Jewish term for God, the father of, it's literally the father of the lights. Heavenly is sort of implied because the Jews referred to God. That's one of the ways they referred to him, the father of the lights. What lights? The lights in my house? No, the heavenly lights, the stars, the moon, the sun, all of that. He gave us light so that we could see both physically and spiritually, if you will. So, Remember, the Bible says God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. First John uh, chapter 1 says that. So he gives good gifts. He doesn't give temptation. He's referring back to that verse that says, verse 13, when you're tempted, no one should say, God's tempting me. He's answering that verse with this one. God gives good gifts, doesn't give temptation. So we ought to be grateful, as I said. Um, the last part of the verse the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Um, some verses, some translations have, there's no darkness in him. He gave us the lights, the light of the sun and even the moon so that we can see variation in light versus darkness, color, all of that shadows. In him, there's no shadows or shifting shadows or change. What does that mean? It means, and this may seem like a minor point, but it's not. It's the doctrine of the immutability of God. Doesn't mean you can't hit the mute button on God. It means he's unchangeable and he doesn't ever change. The same thing is said about Jesus Christ, um, where it says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever in Hebrews 13, 8. But Malachi 3 is where God says, I change not. Why is this important? Because if God could change, he, he's very good right now, but he could become evil, or he could become cold and indifferent to us, or he could become, you know, vindictive in some way. He never changes. He's not like us. There's no shifting shadows. If you've ever had someone change on you who acted toward you one way and then now treats you in a mean way or ignores you or whatever the case may be, you know how unsettling that is. God is a solid foundation, as solid as a rock. He'll never change. He's not fickle. So this is a basis for faith and stability. What else it means is this. If the Bible says XYZ is a sin, but in the 21st century, you know, everybody's doing it, God doesn't change. It's still a sin. He doesn't change his word. Well, I'm going to take that out of Hebrews 4 or 1 Peter 1. What's a sin? God says is a sin is a sin. He doesn't change. Um, but the ultimate good gift that he gives, look back at verse 17, the ultimate gift, good and perfect gift, reason it's perfect is because God is perfect. That ultimate, ultimate gift is eternal life that he gives in his son. I want you to notice that it's a gift. What does that mean, Joe? It means that you can't earn it or deserve it. If someone gives you a gift, you did not earn it. If they give you wages, you earned it. If they give you a gift, it's a gift. It's free. Uh, 
so that we can't take credit for our righteousness or our salvation. Um, and remember that the ultimate measure of any gift is how good it is. We just saw it's perfect and good, all God's gifts, and how long it lasts. If you buy me a Coke, I appreciate that. I'm going to drink it and throw the can away or bottle away, but it's temporary. And every physical gift is temporary. God's eternal life, you have it now, First John 5 says, um, these things I've written that you may know that you have, present tense, eternal life. You have it now if you believe, and you'll have it for all eternity, not just for the rest of your life. That's just the beginning when you die. Okay, let's keep rolling. Verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth so that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Okay, now he's introducing the subject of his word, the word of truth, meaning the Bible, meaning the whole gospel message. This says that he, God, he chose to give us. Again, give us is the kind of terminology you would use if something's a gift. He chose to do it. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. He chose to give us, notice it says, birth through the word of truth. That doesn't mean physical birth, although he does give us that as well. In context, he's talking about salvation, and he chose to give us that through the word of truth. In other words, if there wasn't a Bible or no one was there to tell you what it says about Jesus, you would never have thought this up on your own. Um, so he gave it to us through the word of truth, meaning the gospel, the Bible. That word, the word of truth, the gospel, the Bible is going to come back again and again. And you got to remember that although there's little sayings here and there in the rest of the chapter, it's all coming back to that subject. I'll show you that in a second. So he chose to give us birth. That's being born again. You might have received Christ when you were 25 or 50 or 16. At that point, you had physical life already. You did not have spiritual life. The Bible says that those that are not saved, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3, I think it is, says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. What that means is that we were alive physically, dead spiritually. He made us alive. So what happened when you received Christ as your Savior and he knew you meant it, whatever you said, you became alive spiritually. Suddenly, the Bible began to make more and more sense. The Holy Spirit came to live inside of you, which is a louder conscience and a guide as you read his word. And you began to see two things, what God wants and how far you are from it. And God begins the process of changing you and I and making us more and more what he wants us to be. So go back to that verse. He chose to give us birth. That's the new birth, born again when we were saved through the word of truth, through the Bible. That's why it's so important that we might be a, a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now he's referring there. He does not mean you and I there. He means we, when he says we, he's talking about this book is written somewhere between 43 and 48 AD. Jesus dies somewhere between 30 and 33 AD. So this is the earliest book of the New Testament. Not very long afterwards, James writes this book. He's saying that we, the we is we Jewish Christians who are the first to believe. He chose us that we could be a kind of first fruits 
of all he created. Okay, what's first fruits? What does that mean? In the Old Testament, the Jews were commanded, if you had a farm and you raised eggs, chickens and eggs, um, you were commanded to give some of the first part of when you got eggs, give some it, it, to God's work, to the temple. If you, if you raised peaches or broccoli, you would give the first part, the best part of your crop indicating there's more where this came from. I so trust you, God, that even though I've only picked 11 apricots, I'm giving all of them to you from my orchard, the first fruits. He's saying they are the first fruits. The thing about first fruits is it, what it implies is there's a lot more where that came from. And since there were only several thousand believers, maybe a hundred thousand by the time he's writing this, there are a couple billion Christians on planet earth now. It's grown exponentially. This is a rare case where what we're, what we're reading is not referring to us. The we is early Jewish Christians, a first fruits of all he created. Verse 19, my dear brothers and sisters, that reminds you that he's writing to Christians, mostly Jewish Christians at that time, but Christians nonetheless. So this is referring to us. Now, this is a verse a lot of people take out of context. Like a lot of verses, it's got several layers of meaning. Let me show you. Verse 19, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry or slow to anger. What's going on here? Okay. What's the context? Okay. There's an immediate context, which is the word and being born again, the Bible. Okay. There's a broader context, which is trials, which he started talking about around verse two or three. Remember that? Trouble in your life, how to react to it with joy, because joy, that brings perseverance, all of that. So in context, verse 19 has several layers of meaning. Let me take them apart for you. First of all, the obvious meaning, this is like a proverb. If you pluck it out of its context, it still makes sense. It's still true. So let's do that first. Everyone, who, who's everyone? Believers ought to be the kind of people, this is a test for us, that are quick to listen. In other words, we're eager to listen to other people. God gave us two ears, one mouth, twice as many ears as tongues, if you will. Uh, one tongue, two ears. Secondly, what the rabbis used to write that the ears are exposed and out right on the surface of your head, whereas your tongue is inside behind a wall of lips and a cage of teeth, almost like it's a beast. We're going to see that later in this chapter. So we ought to be better at listening than we are quick to jump in and just start talking to people. That's the basic level of this verse. Everyone should be quick to listen. Do more listening than you do speaking. Secondly, um, slow to speak. Think about your words. Your words can hurt people. Your words can be mis misconstrued. Carefully choose your words. Be slow to speak. Be hesitant to speak. Do a lot of listening. Nowadays, um, a lot of people, because especially I think because we've been in lockdown for so long with COVID and everybody feels isolated and we've got masks, masks on and you can't see people's mouths. Um, Everybody now coming out of it 
needs to talk. Have you noticed that? People really need to talk. We need to be good listeners. This is the base level. Slow to speak and slow to anger. This is There's two words for anger in Greek. This is not the outburst of he just blew up at the guy. That's not this kind of anger. This is a settled, simmering disposition of anger and hatred for somebody. Let that happen very slowly to you, if at all. The Bible says elsewhere in the New Testament, be angry and don't sin and sin not. Uh, King James has. Okay, so that basic level that that this is about being good listeners, don't be in a hurry to speak. That's the basic level. Like I said, several layers. Let's go to the next layer. What's the immediate context? The word. Let me show you why I say that. Um, the word appears, let's see, I've got it in my notes somewhere, but I can just read it and tell you. Um, notice the word um, appears in verse 21. We're in 19. It appears again, humbly accept the word planted in you. Look at verse 22. Don't merely listen to the word. There it is again. Uh, verse 23, anyone listens to the word. So the, the immediate context is the Bible. Okay. So I read a lot of commentaries on this because I even like the basic level of being good listeners. Don't rush in to talk to people, to, to be the one blabbing away. Be good listeners, be slow to anger. That's the base level. But the second level in context is this. Regarding God's word, everyone should be quick to listen, first of all. Eager to listen. Um, to have a very receptive attitude when reading the Bible. Don't rush through it. Don't read it and pick and choose. Well, I like that, but I don't, I don't like any of this here. Don't go into the reading the Bible defensively. What's it going to say to me today? We have to be eager, quick to listen. The more we listen to God's word, the more we grow, the more we understand him, the more we love him. So quick to listen, slow to speak. This is going to come up again in chapter three. In fact, slip, skip over to chapter three, and I think it's verse one of James. Unfortunately, I'm in the Old Testament here. James, Philemon, Hebrews, James, chapter three, verse one, talks about this whole speaking thing and says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And then he talks about being at fault in what he says in verse two. We'll get to that in a few weeks. My point is this, in context, be quick to listen to God's word, the Bible, receptive listeners. Secondly, be slow to wanting to speak it and teach it. Certainly we should witness to others that aren't believers, but be slow in terms of saying, I think I'm ready to be a teacher. I've been studying the Bible for two weeks now. Doing that without the proper training from God and from other teachers can end up with people like are on TV and some Christians on some Christian stations that are teaching stuff that is not biblical. They rushed into the whole teaching thing. Be quick to listen to God's word, slow to teach, speak it, and slow to become angry. You say, now, wait, why angry? Listen, there are people usually immature Christians or even unbelievers who read the Bible and are angry about what it says. They don't like that it says stuff against getting drunk 
or being in an altered state of consciousness, or about lust, or about lying, or about a hundred other things. We cannot be angry with God's word, because when we are, every time we're wrong, he's right. He doesn't change. He's perfect, right? So that's the second level of meaning there, but there's an even, uh, I believe, deeper spiritual uh, meaning that's going on here. Um, and that is in trials, when we're going through trials, we ought to be quick to listen to God's word because that's where you go when you're going through trials is read the Bible and pray. Trust me, what nourishment it is. Um, a, years ago, my wife uh, showed me an article in one of her health journals. She reads a lot of those things um, that talked about if you're in bed and asleep and you wake up and now you're tossing and turning, you can't go back to sleep. If it's been more than 20 minutes, get up, go read something for five or 10 minutes and go back to bed and you'll fall asleep. I do this sometimes. So I can't sleep. I have something on my mind. I just get up. I go in the other room. I read the Bible. I go back. I fall asleep. Good time. If you're going through a trial, be quick to listen to God's word. Be slow to speak. Do a lot of listening before you tell God what you think you should do. And don't be angry with what the word of God says. Don't be angry about the trial you're in. So anyway, we'll move on, but several levels of meaning there, but the word word is going to come up as I showed you again and again and again, let's keep rolling. Um, let's see. So slow to become angry. Verse 20, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. What's righteousness? being right with God, obeying what he wants. He has a will for your life. Did you know that? What he wants you to accomplish and do. That's why you're here. Most of us don't do it because we're so busy doing our will um, and we miss opportunities like that. So the goal of the Bible, of the word, is the righteousness of God. It produces it. Um, so to make us right with God. So be quick and eager to listen to the Bible. Don't rush into being a teacher or preacher. And don't be angry with God because when you're angry with God, you are more likely to sin, right? You ever see people shake their fist at God? Why did you do this to my daughter or my sister, or my friend or myself? Why am I in this predicament? Uh, Chris Christopherson, remember that song, Why Me, Lord? Um, I won't sing it for you. But anyway, uh, very important that we read God's word with a very humble heart. That's about to come out, uh, come up as well. Um, so God wants to produce something in our lives with the word and with the trials. What is it? The righteousness that he desires. The interesting thing is the more you read God's word, the more you start to want that same righteousness that he wants for you and me. And the weird, there's a weird verse in the Old Testament I want to say it's in the Psalms. I, I couldn't quote it for you, um, chapter and verse, but it basically says that those who love God, he will give them the desires of their heart. Some people have used that as a license to ask for all kinds of outlandish things. Well, I love you now, God, so I, I want a condo on the beach. But that verse may be saying that if you love God, the more you get into his word, the more you are obeying him, he will give you desires 
And you will want the same thing that he does, which is actually what prayer is supposed to be, us praying God's will back to him. Remember, I always say the central phrase in the Lord's prayer is, may your kingdom come, may your will, God, be done. Most people pray, here's my will, God, may it be done. I want this and this. Prayer, the best way to pray is for God's will to be done, because there's no higher ground than that spiritually. Okay, um, we already talked about that. Um, Let's see, going back to the text. Are you still awake? Wave or say amen. Most of you I can't see, but I can see eight or 10 of you. Um, okay. The righteousness that God wants, that he desires, anger is definitely the opposite of that. Verse 21. Therefore, what's the therefore? Therefore, we always ask that question. What's the context immediately? God's righteousness that he desires for you and me. So what do we need to do, James? Therefore, get rid of, cast off is really what the word means. Get rid of all moral filth and the uh, evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. There's a lot in this verse. Let's take it apart. Therefore, because God wants righteousness for you, there's something blocking you and I getting there. What is it, James? something to throw away, get rid of all the moral filth and evil. The word for evil is a general word for iniquity or evil, bad stuff. The first word, the filth is all moral, everything that is against what God wants. Okay. He's saying, cast it off like dirty clothes. You've been working out in the mud all day in the fields. And now you've come in and you're about to go in the house, throw off the dirty clothes get rid of them. He's saying we wear that dirt, that sin, throw it off and get rid of it because it is an impede, it impedes us growing in faith. It, it impedes the righteousness God wants us to do. The moral filth can be things that we're reading or watching on television or on the internet or stuff that's in our memory from long ago. God cleansed me from those things kind of thing you can pray. We're supposed to cast off all that evil. But here's where it gets really interesting. I hope you're listening. Say amen, even though I can't hear you. That word, um, rupos or ruparia in Greek, is used in literature of that time the same word for filth or dirt he's, that he's saying to cast it off like clothing for wax in a person's ears that makes it harder to hear. In a way, it fits the whole idea of the word of God, doesn't it? He's saying if you live in consistent moral filth where you're consistently stealing or lying or getting drunk or lusting or whatever it may be, or being selfish or be, like, holding anger, whatever it may be, that is like wax in your ears in terms of you can't really hear clearly what God wants to say to you in the Bible. He's saying, clean out your ears so that you can hear, so that you can obey better and understand God's word. What it's actually, I think, saying is this, and I found it true in my own life. I was reading the Bible and going to Christian church when I was still kind of living with one foot in the world and sinning, and the Bible didn't make us nearly as much sense as it does as I've progressed in my life. Am I sinless? Of course not. But the, the more we obey him, the more his word comes to make sense in our lives, and we hear it. So he's saying, clean out your ears. Um, 
So get rid of that moral filth that you're wearing that's in your ears and the evil that's so prevalent. He recognizes it's a very realistic book, the Bible. Evil is everywhere. I mean, it doesn't take long to find it, right? Um, it's everywhere. And once you've done that, look at the next phrase in verse 21. Humbly accept the word. There's the word again, the Bible, the message of the gospel. He's saying to humbly accept it. You can't come to the Bible with a conceit, with a, I'm smarter than this book. Let me see what I can do to take this stuff apart. We come very humbly like a child listening to what it says. If God says a thing is sin, it's a sin. Even if we think that's not that bad, to God it is. And that's what matters because he's right. If God says these are things we ought to do, the positive side of uh, conduct, then he's right. Those things are always for our benefit. So we're to humbly accept the word, but this is what's beautiful. Planted in you. Somehow, God, when you received Christ as your Savior, not only did he plant in you the Holy Spirit, not only did he give you spiritual life, born again, eternal life, but he also planted his word in you. Well, why can't I hear it? Maybe there's some filth you need to cast off. Maybe there's some filth in your ears you need to clean out, if you will. So humbly accept the word planted in you. You're not smarter. I'm not smarter than the Bible. It's the other way around because the author of the Bible is God. Um, so the last phrase, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you or save your souls, both in an eternal sense, the word is spiritual life. We say in this Bible study a lot that the Bible is a supernatural book. You read it, you will not be unchanged. The more you read it, it gets into you and changes you from the inside out, maybe because it's interacting with the word that he planted in you. There may even be a sense in which he's referring to Jesus, who is the word, John 1.1. 1, 1. Remember, the word was with God and the word was God. Verse 14, the word became of John 1, the word became flesh. There may even be a, a, an allusion to that as well. Um, the point is uh, that we have to listen humbly because that word can save us, not only in the eternal sense, but also in this sinful world, world save us a lot of grief, save us from temptation, save us from sinning. Okay, let's move on. Um, that was verse 21, I believe. Yeah. Um, oh, a couple quick other verses. Jesus, John 15, 7, if my words, remember the context is the word, the Bible, the gospel. If my words abide in you, live in you, then ask whatever you want, and it'll be given you, because your desires have changed. Psalm one nineteen eleven. I have hidden your, uh, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is a person that has memorized portions of God word, God's word, hidden it so he remembers what it says. Maybe not word for word, but he remembers it because he's been studying it uh, all along. Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. Let it live inside of you. You can't do that by osmosis. Here's my Bible. I'm just going to put it up to my head. No, you have to read it, right? You have to study it. You have to stay in it. Okay. Verse 22. Now he's going to get into the main theme of this book. This verse 22, a lot of scholars think is the main verse in the whole book. 
Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Don't just listen to the word. Do it. It's one thing to read a passage of scripture and go, okay, that's the, God thinks that's a sin. Oh, and that and that. Uh-huh. Oh, and I ought to do these things. Uh-huh. And okay, I understand it. And then I don't change my behavior one bit. I keep sinning. I don't do the things he wants me to do. God is saying in verse 22, don't just listen to it and understand it. Because if you do, you'll be deceiving yourselves. Some people think it's just a knowledge thing. If I can just memorize the gospel of John, I'm good. If you don't do it, if it doesn't change your life, it didn't affect you. It didn't get inside you. Do what it says. So simple. Follow the directions. Um, Some people have said the word Bible, B-I-B-L-E, stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. It's the owner's manual, and God is the owner right? He's the one that created you. So that's the theme of this whole book uh, above everything else. Don't just listen to the word, do what it says. And don't deceive yourselves to think you're saved just by, I understand what it says. Obedience should follow listening to the word. Um, Yeah. Practice what you believe in other words. Okay. Verse 23 and 24, he's going to give an example kind of an unusual one. Verse 23, anyone who listens to the word, this is a person reading the Bible, hearing the gospel preached, um, watching the guy on Zoom with the Bible study, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and then after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Okay, what's going on here? The mirrors that they had then were not as exact as the mirrors we have now. But you could see yourself in a reflection. You could see yourself in a pond of water if there was not a lot of current going on, right? Why do people look into mirrors? It is to gain information and do something. Let me show you. When You get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and say, wow. But when you look in the mirror, my point is you're going to fix what isn't right, right? If you need to shave, you shave. I'm assuming that's for men, right? If your hair needs fixing, you do that. Ladies, if you need to put makeup on, you look in the mirror. You're looking in the mirror to gain information. What's going on? What needs fix? Oh, I've got a smudge here. And you want to clean your face or do whatever is needed. So anyone that listens to the word, and doesn't do what it says. It's like someone that looks at his face in a mirror, verse 24. And then he goes away and forgets what he looks like. He doesn't make any changes. Oh yeah. I looked in the mirror. I need a shave and I've got a big dirt smudge here and my hair is a mess. And then I just walk away from the mirror. It makes no sense. The Bible, listen, is a mirror. The Bible is a supernatural book. The Bible will, if you read it, and really understand it, it can be a little scary because it will show you how perfect and good God is and how bad and not perfect I am and what I need to change. So the Bible is a mirror where I look at myself and it shows me who I really am. And I don't mean my appearance. I mean in here, in my heart, in my desires, in my motives, in my reasons for everything that I do. The more that we can look at it 
and see what needs to be changed and then put it into action by the power of his spirit, the more the Bible will do us good. If all we do is look and learn, and then we're still living the same sinful lives we were before, we're in big trouble. The Bible is a mirror. To put it into 21st century and 20th century vernacular, the Bible is a spiritual x-ray machine. It looks beneath the surface and shows you stuff that don't show up on x-rays, but do on God's x-rays. All our motives, all our secret sins, all of that. Um, let's see, go back to the text. I want to, um, let's see, which verse is that? Okay, that's 24. Um, the Literally, verse 24 reads, um, he goes away and forgets what he looks like. Do you see that at the end of that verse 24? Literally in the Greek, that reads, forgets the face of his birth meaning the his real nature, his real motives, his real desires, his real sin that needs changing. God wants you to look into the Bible as a mirror. And by the way, you don't look into a mirror once a month. You look in the morning at least once, maybe, and at night when you're brushing your teeth. Do I have anything in my teeth, right? Uh, you want to look and make the change. Verse 25, we're almost at our two-minute break, but not quite. Um, verse 25, here's the other side of the coin, but whoever looks intently, and that word looks intently is like stooping over to get a closer look. There's that humility thing, right? Bending over. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. What's he talking about? The word. He's, it's a synonym for the word of God, for the Bible. It is the perfect law that gives freedom. We'll come back to that. And continues in it, meaning continues to study it continually and make the changes God wants in us, not forgetting what they've heard, not forgetting what I look like in the spiritual mirror of God's book, but doing it, they will be blessed in all that they do, in what they do. Pretty interesting. Okay, go back to the beginning of verse 25. Whoever looks intently, this is a, a scrutiny, a study of God's word. Don't buzz through. Read it slowly. Reread it if you're like me and your mind wanders sometimes when you read. Read it again and again. Look, Looking intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. You say, well, I live in America. I'm free. It doesn't mean freedom, political freedom. It means freedom from sin. Well, I can free myself from sin. It's impossible. Only by a work of God, the Holy Spirit living inside of you, can you free yourself from sin. And first, before you do, you have to be forgiven. The only way with, to do that is with Jesus Christ. So that's why it's the perfect law given by a perfect lawgiver that gives freedom. It also gives you the freedom and I the freedom to do the good things God wants us to do that we could never do in our sinful state before. Because our ears were plugged, we were wearing our filth, right? The perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it. There's the perseverance, the study, and the obedience. Not forgetting what they've heard, remembering. Because I'm reading the Bible and it says, oh, it's a sin to do this. And I close the book and I go out into the world. I ought to remember when I'm tempted to do that very thing, not to do it. Um, if they do that, and then they're doing it, not just hearing it, they're doers of the word. They'll be blessed in what they do. No wonder, because then the tool, which is you and me, in God's hands can do what it was made to do. 
Let's take our two minute break and stretch our legs. I'm just going to turn my screen off. Don't go away. I'll be back in two minutes. Stretch your legs. I'll be back. All right, find your seats, if you will. It's been about two minutes, give or take. Anyway, find your seats, if you will. We're back at the Tuesday night Bible study, and we're in James chapter 1, toward the end of the chapter, right around verse 25. We, when we learn from that perfect law that gives freedom and continue in it, God can use us. Till then, we're living our own way. He really can't. Um, we're free from the bondage of, if you're a Jew, the old ceremonial law with all the kosher foods and all that, all the sacrifices, free from guilt, free from the wrath of God, free to do and be what we were meant to be, right? Remember, there used to be, I think in the 70s or 80s, there were commercials on TV about the army. I think it was the army. And it was be all that you can be in the army. Be all that you can be in Christ. Verse 26. Verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. James does this a lot. Mentions something about being slow to speak, comes back and deals with it again later. So he's doing that here. Those who consider themselves religious, by the way, in that culture, that word was never used positively. Um, and I meet people sometimes that, are you a Christian? Well, I'm very spiritual. I'm very religious. Okay, do you go to church? No. You read the Bible? No. But I just, I know God and we have a relationship. We have an understanding. Do you? Religi uh, those who consider themselves religious and don't keep a tight rein on their tongues, again, broader context, tests to see, am I a believer? Am I listening to the word or am I also doing it? Am I listening humbly to the word? Do I have a tight rein on my tongue? Am I careful what I say, knowing that words can damage and hurt people? If, if you think you're religious and you don't keep a tight rein on your tongue, this says you're deceiving they're deceiving themselves, and their religion is, wait for it, worthless. Wow, worthless, meaning there's nothing to that religion, um, the evidence of which is that you're doing all kinds of damage with what you say and not keeping a rein on your tongue. This is just one example he's giving of a doer of the word, because the Bible does say to be careful what you say. Uh, what you do with your tongue, if you will. Um, so one way that it, the religion is shown to be real is in verse 27. Uh, the, the reverse before it talks just about the controlling of the tongue. Now that's uh, withholding something. Now the opposite, giving of something. What is it? Verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted, oneself from being polluted by the world. So two things. Number one, looking after orphans and widows in their distress. Number two, keeping yourself from being polluted by 
dirtied by, if you will, the world. The world meaning not the not doesn't mean that you go live in a commune and never speak with anyone. It means you can be in the world, but not of it. We are told to interact with people like orphans and widows, like the unsaved people and witness to them. But the point is what we ought to be doing is be, like I said, being in the world, but not of it. But let's start with orphans and widows. Okay. Why orphans and widows? Why does he choose them? So you have to ask yourself, an orphan is a, a child, somebody very young, or even a baby without parents or parents that have abandoned the child. Okay. A widow is someone in that culture, um, uh, an older woman who has lost her husband. She has no means of support. The man is the guy that went out and worked, usually not the woman. What do they have in common? They are the lower members of society. They are powerless. They are almost always very poor. They're in need. Okay. So orphans and widows, they're close to God's heart. Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 10, Isaiah 1, Old Testament over and over that God looks to those people that are in need and elevates them. Orphans and widows, why do we need to care for them? By the way, there's no distinction. Christian orphans and Christian widows, not necessarily. Those that are in need, make sure that you're, you are looking out for those who are in need. What else do they have in common? Think of it this way. They can't repay the favor. You know, if I'm good to that orphan, then I'll make money off this somehow. How? They have nothing to give back. Same with the widow. As opposed to if I'm nice to that rich guy, he might do something reciprocal to me. These people cannot return the favor. That shows that your motive in helping them is not to get something back. They have nothing to give. It's purely to obey God. So they're close to God's heart. Um, it's a good indicator of godliness if you care about the poor. Um, so they have no family. They're in need. They're outsiders. Um, so love that sees a need and meets the need is very valuable to God. He's about to give another example that's even a little more ridiculous, but we'll wait on that. Um, let's see, go back to that verse again with me. Um, it's religion that our God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless, looking after orphans and widows in their distress. And here's the second thing, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's hard. I, I personally believe the less television you watch, I mean, I know there's some good programs and you want to stay up on the news or whatever, the, the better you are, less TV. It's in popular music. It is in not all, but a lot. It's in novels and it's in movies and uh, certainly all over the internet is the world's philosophy. The less we can um, be stained by that that stuff, the better will be. Um, keep oneself from being polluted, dis, you know, diluted and polluted by the world. It's an interesting, interesting verse. Um, the world has its own worldview, its own way of thinking. It doesn't include God. You know, it's some worldly sayings that are slogans from advertising. He who win, who he who dies with the most toys wins, which is all about greed, right? If it feels good, do it. Everyone else is doing it. 
right? Um, there's all kinds of worldly philosophy. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. That's worldly philosophy. No, you didn't. God gave you the gifts and the opportunity and the ability. Um, so in Genesis, there's a character named Lot. Perfect example of somebody who was getting stained by the world, living towards Sodom, which was a very evil place, um, and not retreating from the world, but kind of having one foot in it. Um, he ends up seeing how attractive it is and the prosperity, ends up becoming one of the leaders of that city and barely escapes as Sodom gets destroyed by the skin of his teeth, right? So it's more than just knowledge. Um, it's putting truth into practice and loving others, especially those in need who can't repay you. Um, there is in this chapter um, the three dimensions of uh, growth that God expects. I'm calling them vertical, horizontal, and then inward. Let me show you what I mean. Upward is vertical, growth toward God. We're getting to know God through his word. We are seeking to be obedient servants. We are humble in listening to his word. Upward, vertical, worshipers of God, humble lovers of God. Outwardly, we're treating people differently than we used to because of what the Bible says to do. Because it deals with the, the, the vertical, of course, the worship of God. And then the horizontal, the way we look at not only people and deal with them, but the way we look at the things that we own, they become strangely dim. It's not that important, the money or the financial stuff or the material goods. And then inwardly, it's changing. God is changing our thoughts, our motives, our desires, even growth in three dimensions. Um, just looking at notes here. I think that's it for chapter one. Okay, let's move on to chapter two. Hopefully you're still awake. I see you folks in Vanuatu. Vanuatu is halfway around the world and it's morning there. I see the two of you and I'm waving. That's nice. Okay, chapter two is more applications before we dive in. It's more applications for us in our daily life, more little tests. It, it corresponds very tightly with chapter seven of Matthew, which is this whole book um, kind of goes almost in order with the sermon on the mount that Jesus gave. He's going to talk about partiality or favoritism, the way that we sometimes treat, I, I alluded to it a second ago, rich people, we treat differently because he can help me out. I'm going to take care of him. Oh, that poor guy, that homeless guy, what, what can he do for me? Wrong attitude. We'll get into it. Chapter two, verse one. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Keep in mind that he's talking about his brother, his big brother. First, he calls Christians again, my brothers and sisters. And then he says, those who believe, it's not just head knowledge, those who believe, and he calls his brother, our glorious Lord, Kyrios, word for God, Jesus, the man's name from Nazareth, Christ, the Messiah. Those who believe in that figure must not show favoritism. Well, what do you mean, James, exactly? James says, let me give you an example. Verse two, suppose a man comes into your meeting uh, wearing a fine gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. 
two extremes, right? A very rich guy, and that was rare in the early Christian church. It was mostly poor people. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of Christians today are not extremely wealthy. It tends to be poor people. It tends to be the ones that aren't that powerful. So he's going to give an example and not showing partiality is something Deuteronomy 10 talks about. Acts 10 talks about it. God is no respecter of persons. God doesn't say, you know what? I need that guy. He's a billionaire. I don't need that poor guy. If anything, God is slanted more toward the poor. Look at Jesus is born in a poor family, in a barn, basically, or a cave. Their family, Jesus's parents, go to make an offering when the, they go to present the baby at the temple. They can only afford two doves. They can't afford the normal offering. Poor family. God elevates the poor. He humbles the rich and the those that are too full of themselves. Um, let's see, we already read, we talked about that. So Jesus wants to break down all the divisions that we make in terms of race, in terms of status, who's wealthy and who's not, who's powerful and who's not, who's a female and who's a male, all the racial ones, every division. He wants to get rid of that. And we're all equal at the cross. Uh, Galatians 3.28 says there, at the cross, there's no Jew or Greek, that's race, slave or free, that's financial uh, strata, if you will, male and female, gender. We're all one in Jesus Christ. So um, the apathy toward the poor and the pandering toward the rich and kissing their behinds, both of those are equally evil. Um, so go back to that verse. Suppose a man comes into your meeting um, or assembly. Literally, the word is synagogue, because the early Christian church for a little while met in synagogues until the Jews, who were Jews and not Christians, kicked them out because, oh, you're worshiping that Jesus guy. We don't like that. So that's what it means, assembly, synagogue. Um, this is before the Jews, uh, I'm sorry, before Gentiles, non-Jews, were the majority in Christianity. Okay, so here's our analogy. He wear, is wearing a fine uh, gold ring, and a, a gold ring and fine clothes. Now, in those days, they wore rings only on their left hand, and to show off, they would wear multiple rings on each finger, oddly enough, except for the middle finger. I don't even know why that is, um, but they would show off their wealth. So at a church where it's mostly poor Christians, they would see, oh, look at this guy in that fine suit. He's got really nice clothes. He's clearly wealthy and powerful. We need to really take good care of this guy. He's saying that's as evil as ignoring the poor man. Watch. But also a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. Verse three, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here, here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, you, you stand there. Notice one sitting, one's having to stand, standing room only. You stand there or, or sit on the floor by my feet, low position. Have you not, verse four, discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. That's judging on a worldly basis. God loves the base things, the lower things uh, of the earth, especially. Now, this does not preclude a rich person becoming 
a Christian or powerful. It does happen. It's just not the norm. Christians also tend to be, there are some very educated ones, but they tend to be the less educated as well. It's a humble sort of a thing. Um, the early church was poor. So if there was a rich guy coming into your church, the temptation was, we need this guy's money. And that's an evil reason to be holding church or worship services, right? Because the guy can donate more and what have you. Jews considered wealth. Look at the nice clothes and all the rings he's got as a sign that God really favors him. And that poor man, wow, God must be mad at him. Couldn't be more wrong. Could not be more wrong. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16, look it up after Bible study, tells that story. There was a, a very wealthy man and there was a poor beggar named Lazarus. They both die. Lazarus goes to heaven. The rich guy that never would help Lazarus goes to Hades, awaiting judgment, hell, eventually. So he's saying, those of you that are the ushers in church, making a big deal out of the rich guy and ignoring the poor guy are sinning. It's double-minded. He does not want you to be a respecter of people based on their money. Everybody ought to be treated blindly, whether it's race, whether it's money, whether it's any, any other worldly uh, value. Um, okay. So have you not discriminated, verse four, and become judges with evil thoughts? The ultimate judge is God. We're supposed to judge with a righteous judgment. Well, how can I know what that is? The more you read the Bible, these things become very, very clear. Um, verse five, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, addressing Christians again, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? Generally speaking, that's what he's saying, and he's right. And to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you, verse six, have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Aren't they the ones who are blaspheming the noble, noble name of him to whom you belong? Okay, what's going on here? Has God chosen more poor in the eyes of the world? Yes. There's no question. The rich tend to be, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I believe it is, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. A rich person has more distractions, and it's harder for a wealthy person to come to faith in Jesus because of the humility, because what do I need? I'm so wealthy. I've got, I've got bank accounts. I've got homes all over the place. I've got rings. I, I've got total security. I think I'll build bigger barns to house everything. And Jesus says, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. You're going to die suddenly. What's going to happen to all that stuff? Can't take it with you, we always say, right? Um, let's talk for a second uh, about, for, uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians 1. So let's take our first detour from James, take a left and go to 1 Corinthians. That's about 10 or 12 books to the left. If you get to Acts or Romans, you went too far, take a right from those books. And if you're not a page turner, that's okay too. 1 Corinthians 1, I'll just read it. And it's verse 26, if my notes are right. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. In other words, you, when you came to faith in Jesus, remember what you were. 
Not many of you were wise by human standards, PhDs, master's degrees. Not many were influential congressmen, presidents of companies, senators, governors. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. He's a prince, a king. Verse 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world. What the world thinks is foolish to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ. And it goes on from there. In other words, God could have, Christ could have picked 12 apostles who are all millionaires, powerful men, and then you'd look at it and go, well, no wonder that religion got started. They had all that seed money, all that power. He chooses 12 very insignificant guys who are not the greatest apostles, are they, until the Holy Spirit gets a hold of them. He chose those things, no money. It's a poor church. They're, they're almost disbanded, right? They're scattered when he goes to the cross, and he turns the world upside down using poor people insignificant people. Why? First of all, because they're more humble. Secondly, so that no one would say it's because they had the money. It's because they had the Holy Spirit. There's no other explanation how Christianity could become the most largest religion in the world. Okay. Um, so that first Corinthians verse, yeah. Um, Luke 6, 20, Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. Yours is the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean rich people can't come to faith, but it's, they're much more distracted by their wealth. Um, let's see. Okay. Matthew eleven five, Jesus says, talking to John, the Baptist's disciples, they, they come to ask, John wants to know, are you really the guy or should we look for somebody else? And he, I'm paraphrasing. And Jesus says, you go tell John, the, the blind are given sight and the deaf are given hearing and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's just God's way to especially love those that the world casts off and doesn't love, doesn't like. Verse, um, let's see, verse six. Now he makes a point. You've dishonored the poor, but he's saying that's illogical because the poor aren't your enemies. Often the rich are the ones that are dragging you into court, the ones that are suing you, the ones that are taking your property. We know that the Sadducees were um, confiscating poor women's houses who had become um, widows. Look at verse six. Is it not, uh, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? They're not your friends. Are they not, aren't they the ones who are blaspheming Jesus, the noble name of him to whom you belong? Man, verse seven, we could spend all night on, but we won't. They're, they're also not your friends because they're, you tend to be the educated, the elites, the wealthy, tend to blaspheme the name of Jesus, right? You can't use it in school now. You used to be able to. It's become uh, a, a thing you can't talk about. They're the ones blaspheming, listen to this, the noble name. That means Jesus's name. You mean he's a king? I do. The king of kings and lord of lords, right? Revelation. They're blaspheming the noble name of him. Notice the last phrase. To whom you are affiliated. Now, 
Our friends would know. That's all true, though. To him, him to whom you belong. Do you realize that your life is not your own anymore? Actually, you're still given free choice to do or not do what God wants you to do, but you belong to somebody. He bought you with a price, the New Testament says. He died on the cross and saved you and bought you. You actually belong to him. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. It's an interesting verse. Um, so let's keep rolling. Verse eight. Um, yeah. In other words, he's saying it's inconsistent to despise your friends, poor people, that don't do you any harm, and to honor those that often are the ones stealing houses and doing illegal stuff and, and being kind of arrogant. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Of course, you know the verse that says love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money's great. You can use it for a lot of good things. But if it becomes your God, love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Do you remember the rich man that comes to Jesus who's a rich young ruler? And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. And the guy says, oh, I've kept them all, which can't be true, by the way. It would mean he's not a sinner. And then Jesus says, okay, well, then there's only one thing you lack. Jesus uses his spiritual x-ray vision and says to the guy, I see right through you. You got another God. You want eternal life? You want closeness with God? He tells the guy, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. He doesn't say that to anybody else. Why does he say it to him? Because you got to get rid of the God you got if you want God to be your God. If you want me to be your Lord. That's what Jesus is saying. So money can be a great blessing, but it can be a distraction for the rich. Um, we already talked about that. And the Sadducees, yes, were dragging people into court. That's literally the word there. Um, that name, verse seven, the noble name to him of him to whom you belong is the name we're baptized into Acts 238, the, the broader baptism formula. And there is no one formula, but in Matthew 28, it's baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit which is correct, both. You can baptize people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Um, let's keep reading the text. I'm just reading notes here too. Uh, verse eight, if you really keep the royal law, remember the law of freedom, the word, they're all synonyms. That's the scripture. I mean, that's the context. If you really keep the royal law, meaning not just keep it in a drawer, but you're keeping it, you're obeying it, you're reading it, you're studying it, treating it as the treasure that it is. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. Okay, that's called the golden rules. Another way of saying it, do unto others as you would have people do unto you. You treat yourself well, you feed yourself. Now do the same with those who are poor and need help. So if you're really keeping that royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But verse nine, if you show favoritism, I love that guy, but not her, not him kind of thing. You sin and are convicted by the law as law breakers. Remember, this is a test. It's a midterm for Christians, a series of 
criteria by which we can examine ourselves and say, how am I doing on that one? Am I, am I um, showing favoritism to certain people and not others because they can benefit me in some way? So verse nine, if you show favoritism, that's a sin. You're convicted by the law as law breakers. Verse 10, for whoever keeps, this is an interesting verse, whoever keeps the whole law, I'm doing all those commandments right. And yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Now, the Jews looked at the law of God, the Old Testament, which would be the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments in the Old Testament. And these are Jewish Christians who might look at the New Testament the same way. They, would, they looked at it incorrectly as a bunch of disconnected um, injunctions. Do this, don't do that, don't do that, do this, do this, do that. And they looked at them individually so that you would almost get your little God credit score. I'm doing good on that one and that one and that one. That's points in heaven. Oh, I'm not doing so well in that one. That's a little minus that would be subtracted from my total. God doesn't see it that way. In fact, this is an amazing verse, and I'll show you the parallel in a second. Whoever keeps the whole law. This is somebody that is doing everything right. Okay. And the law is both negative and positive as are deeds or works, which we'll talk about later. What do you mean it's negative and positive? Some of the law of God is don't do this. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't lust. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit fornication. Don't be greedy. Don't be selfish. Don't hold a grudge. Don't, don't, don't thou shalt not, right? The other half of the law is positive. Do this, give to the poor, worship God, love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see how there's a positive and a negative? Okay, so go back to that verse again. Um, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, he got a 99.5 on the test, is guilty of breaking all of it. You say, boy. That means God doesn't grade on a curve. Yes, you're right. The parallel verse is in the Sermon on the Mount. I think it's at the end of chapter five of Matthew, where Jesus says, do the best you can. No, God understands 80% and above, 60%. Listen, Jesus says at the end of chapter five, I think it is, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You say, well, then that's a ridiculous standard. Nobody can keep it right. Now you're on the right track. Now you are what he described as blessed are the poor in spirit. You are poor spiritually and you know it. I can't keep the whole law. I can't be perfect. I can't keep the whole law without breaking one or two commandments or maybe more. This is an extreme analogy because there's no one who keeps every point of the law and is only guilty of breaking one. But the reason he's doing it this way is to show them 99 and a half. There's an old blues song with this title, just won't do. If we equate God's law with a window pane, okay, two feet by two feet, we each get a window pane. It's God's law. This is what God's will is for you. Here's what not to do. Here's what to do. God's law, window pane. Got it? And we install, install that window pane in the house of your life. 
There are people who break that window pane with a baseball bat, right? Or a shotgun. They're constantly sinning in a thousand areas. <laughs> Excuse me. There are also people who really are trying on their own to get be good enough to earn God's favor, which you can't do. But they're trying, and they only break it a little bit in the corner, and there's a, a crack over here, and they kind of bent it here, and it kind of cracked. And either way, what do we have? Two broken windows. Well, to varying degrees, it doesn't matter. There are some sins that are worse than others, but to break one is to break the whole law. Because if you broke it in just one little spot, you got a broken window. You broke God's law. Read it again. If you're, it, it stumbles at just one point, you're guilty of breaking all of it. The end of verse 10 there. If it sounds harsh, remember that God is absolutely sinless and perfect. And if you want to live where he lives, that's what you have to be. So when you're throwing up your hands and saying, well, then I can't do this. Exactly. Not alone, you can't. But with the Holy Spirit living inside of you, to the extent that you and I submit to him, you and I can live this life, and we will be sinning less and less and less. And we'll be perfect only when we die or when Christ returns and we're changed, when we're resurrected. Then we'll be perfect. In heaven, we'll be perfect. There won't be 99.5. We won't sin. We won't even have a sin nature. We won't want to sin. We won't even like sin. We won't talk about sin. But till then... That, that pane of glass, we're supposed to be growing and breaking the law of God less and less. Another analogy, okay? From the pane of glass now, we go to a chain. Everybody has a 250-foot steel chain. You got the picture? That's God's law. 250 feet is a lot of little links. If one of your links is broken, do you know what you have? A broken chain. Doesn't have to have a 50 broken links. Any breaking of God's law, you've broken the law. There's no selective obedience. I'm doing good on the adultery one and the lust one, not so good on the greed one or the anger one or the selfishness one. Doesn't work with God. Might work in a human minds. Doesn't work with God. Verse, let's see, where are we? Uh, 11. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery. That's God the Father. Jesus reiterated it and made it clear in the New Testament in the Sermon on the Mount. He, God, who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you're a lawbreaker. You got a broken pane of glass. You got a broken chain. Either way. By the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, I bet I can't find it fast enough because we're out of time, but Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I'm going to try to find it really fast, uh, where Jesus takes those very commands um, and says, and takes them to extreme. Um, boy, I can't find it. Divorce. Well, uh, there's one. Okay, adultery. Matthew 5, 27. You've heard that it was said, you do not, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, taking the place of God and telling him, here's what I think. But I tell you that anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her. So the sin is not the sin itself only. It's the seed of the sin, the desire, the, the look, right? He talks about murder in the same 
way and I don't know where, where it is. Um, I thought it was there, but anyway, the, the whole thing he says about murder is you shall not commit murder. And most of the people listening would say, yeah, that's, I'm good on that one. He says, if you hate your brother or call your brother, you fool, you're just as guilty because that's where it starts. That hatred, that superiority feeling. The point is being doers, not merely hearers of the word. And all of this is great and it's high and lofty and it's impossible unless you are submitting to the Holy Spirit in the word and letting him work in you to change you. Unless you are saying, oh, I just sinned. I don't ever want to do that again. Please take that desire away from me, God. That's Then you're on the road to really seeing your life be changed. Um, I think we're going to quit here because I'm sitting in a room by myself talking to myself and starting to think I'm a little nutty. Um, but let's see if we should. Um, we just read verse 11. Yeah. You break one law, you break in all of God's law. The ultimate point of all that is you have to come to the realization that you need a savior, that you can't earn or deserve God's goodness or his blessing. Let's quit here and close with prayer, and then we'll pick it up next time. Thank you so much for being here. Assuming we have decent weather, we'll meet next week in person. Prefer to have you there if you live far away or you can't make it. Zoom is the next best thing. Thank you for being here. Let's pray and we'll uh, close. Thank you for this time, God. The trials and the trouble are inevitable, but help us to stay in the scriptures. Help us not to doubt. Help us to see the fleeting nature of wealth or poverty, and in either case, not judge people or treat people differently because of what they have or their status in life. Help us see how awesome you are giving good gifts and how bad sin really is and to resist it by the power of your Holy Spirit, God. Thanks for every gift that you've given us. We love you. We can't wait to see you. We pray that you would give us this kind of faith that is eternally growing. Help us to read your word and believe it and put it into action. Thank you for this time, God. We give praise to you. We glorify your name. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here. God bless all of you. Wish I could shake your hands like I do in person. We'll see you soon. Hopefully next week, some of you in person, the rest of you on Zoom. God bless you.